Hello and welcome to the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson. I'm the founder of Stack, the subscription service that delivers a different independent magazine to thousands of readers around the world every month. We held our independent magazine fair at Mortimer House here in London a couple of weeks ago, and this episode contains the audio from that day's second panel discussion on breaking the rules. You might have heard that last week we released the audio from our first panel on how to make a magazine, and I wanted to follow that with something on breaking the rules just because it's wrong to think that there's any single correct way to publish an independent magazine. There are clearly loads of different ways that people make it happen, but as you'll hear from this conversation, the one thing that they all have in common is a real passion for their subjects and an incredible determination to bring this printed thing into the world. I loved hearing their thoughts on how and why they do what they do, so I hope you'll enjoy this conversation about breaking the rules of independent publishing. All right, thank you very much. Um, Welcome to our panel on Breaking the Rules. We have three independent magazine makers here who I think are emblematic of the different ways that people go about uh, making their magazines. So uh, down the end, we have David McKendrick, who's the editor of Paperboy. Uh, Caspian Whistler is creative director and editor-in-chief of A Profound Waste of Time. Uh, and Jack Self is Editor-in-Chief of Real Review. So David, we'll start down there with you. Could you tell us what is Paperboy and what makes it different to all the other magazines out there? Okay, um, what is Paperboy? Well, firstly, I, I, apparently I'm editor of Paperboy magazine. Um, I'm also designer, deliverer, maker, phone caller, <coughs> um, make the tea Um Paperboy is in fact an, a, a very independent publication. It's it's me and my girlfriend out my flat, um, and it's a, a hobby. It was born a year and a half ago, um, just as, as halfway through the first year of a pandemic, really. Um, I found myself with some free time and some, some impetus to, to produce a magazine I've wanted to produce for the last 10 years. Um, you can probably tell I'm a bit older than some the youth launching magazines these days, but um, I've worked in editorial and magazines and publishing for the last 20 years of my life, um, and I've only got around to doing something I've always wanted to do, which is publish more magazine a, a year and a half ago. Um, what makes Paperboy unique? There's a number of things about it, um, and we could talk at length in a, in a minute, but um, the first thing about it is, is it gives contributors opportunity. Um, our youngest contributors being eight years old and our oldest contributors being 83 years old. Um, the whole philosophy and the whole idea about Paperboy is that it delivers only good news. Um, the last couple of years have seen us um, in the midst of particularly shit news. So my ambition was to bring a bit of joy, really, and bring a bit of opportunity. And that's the kind of manifesto for this beast. Um, and I could go on about it at length, but I'll Hand over to this okay. young man. Yes. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm Cass uh, Caspian Whistler, and uh, I'm the creative director, founder of a profound waste of time, which is a profound waste of time is a student project that got out of hand. Um, I've been working on this as a student zine. That's how I started, and I was just doing it all on my own, like doing the art and the writing in like a two week like short-term deadline and now uh, today it's like a 200 page uh, massive publication with you know 30 contributors per issue um, and just masses of bespoke illustration that takes a year and a half for me to make so I've, I've really been on a journey with the singer I'm now experiencing both ends of like sort of the, the publishing spectrum I guess um, I guess what makes profound ways of time different is um, video game magazines were kind of dying or like are on the way out 
apart from like a few sort of like exceptions that have like really held on and are really like exceptional. Um, but most video game media and most video game sort of press, uh, the way games are marketed is to do with like machismo, like aggression, kind of like very like male dominated kind of um, energies and tropes and stuff. And so, you know, that's not really representative of the entire industry because video games are the biggest industry on the planet. They're bigger than film, music and TV combined um, in terms of like how much money they generate per year. So really it was looking at that and trying to figure out like how can I figure out a way of like representing this amazing creative dynamic industry with like full of diverse people and like package that in a way that people would understand. I think that's one of the really nice things about magazines is that you don't need to have an interest in video games. If you like words and pictures you'll be able to understand what I'm getting at through this. Um, so yeah, that's a plot. And I guess the last thing about it, which I'll mention, is that it, uh, it's a publication that has no video game screenshots. So like trying to do it 100% or at least as much as possible with bespoke illustration. So it's an art and design magazine about video games. Very good. And Jack? Uh, Real Review is a contemporary culture magazine. It is dedicated to what it means to live today. Uh, I think maybe what makes it different is that um, it has a very particular method for trying to understand the contemporary. I mean, basically, I don't really know what's going on, and I would like to understand more what's going on. And uh, so the, the method that we've developed, it's been running now for six years. We do, on average, two issues a year. Uh, and um, it has two broad agendas. One is uh, what I would call like materialist, which basically means we look at objects, we look at the real world, like what uh, is the current state of the world? What, where do these objects around us come from? Where do these spaces come from? What is their meaning? Uh, who made these objects? What are the power relations, the material flows, um, and so on? Uh, and then on the other hand, we're very interested in, in what's called semiotics, which is basically just like signs, symbols, um, and the exchange of, of information uh, and communication. So in that sense, you know, if I were to give a very basic example, you take something like the nuclear family. Um, the nuclear family didn't exist in Britain before the Industrial Revolution. And then all these factory owners, they, they needed, you know, fit young men to work in the factories. So they started building housing for uh, a ma male worker to be supported by one woman. And that created these new, you know, before that we had much more networked, expansive families. Um, and then on the one hand, so you could look at the, the kind of nuclear family and the house for the nuclear family as an object and say, well, that's a product of an economic system. That's a product of how people want to make money. But then of course, there's a lot of people now who see this as being a traditional family structure. They see it as being somehow eternal or they start to project a lot of emotional uh, dimension onto these things. So they're in a feedback loop between each other, the way things are made and how we interpret them and how we understand them. So broadly, every issue is dedicated to what we call the current mood, which is a way of kind of capturing how it feels right now um, and how it might feel now different from how it might have felt two years ago or five years ago. Um, and then we commission studies. It's a review magazine, and, and a review literally just means to look at something again. Um, so we're very interested in how to look at the world differently. I think that's a fair summary with a brief interjection around housing. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, all right. In, interesting that you brought the housing in because it's probably worth also saying that your organization is also an architectural organization. That's true. So, what significance does that have to the fact that you decided this had to be a print magazine? That you're making like a physical thing and putting it in the world? Um, to be perfectly honest, it comes from a business model uh, perspective, and I think that's important. I, I assume, I, I know you don't have ads, I don't, you don't have ads either. So when we talk about independent, we basically mean no ads and, and therefore no income, right? We, we make money by selling the magazine. In the case of Real Review, we don't have corporate partnerships, we don't have advertorial and so on. We want to be able to preserve the ability to publish whatever we want. Um, 
And therefore, you have to create a business model in which you can sell enough of anything in order to be able to do that. And you know, now we have many other platforms, uh, subscription-based platforms like for digital content like Substack or Patreon or things like this. But six years ago, we didn't really have those. So in essence, the only way that we could work out a core business model was to make a thing and it basically forced people to buy it. So we don't put any of our content online. There's no ability to see what's in real review unless you buy it. And that is how we, that's the business model for it. I think that, I mean, that's kind of disingenuous because it is also the case that uh, as an architect and, and I run something called the Real Foundation, which is, a, uh, it is an architecture firm, but it's a cultural uh, institute dedicated to promoting di diverse, uh, uh, inclusivity, democracy, and equality. Uh, and so real review com comes out of that and you know in terms of how architects think about space We're very interested in your relationship with the written word It is the case that if you read something that's printed you are more likely to remember it and more likely to retain that information than on screen so there's a lot of uh, tactile reasons design reasons um, there's many reasons to, to do with the transferal of knowledge which relate specifically and also when we began I mean you mentioned that you came out of zines I also did a lot of zines when I was uh, much younger than I am now and like copyright wasn't really I was like not bothered by that so the early issues of real review include the most flagrant copyright violations <laughs> that you can imagine because I was just like it's not going to be online no one's ever going to see it it gives you quite a lot of freedom to go into print Interesting. I hadn't, I'd not caught on to that. Okay, all right. David, the um, paperboy, it seems to me, has to be in print because of all the lovely things you do with the physical object. But what was it that first made you think, yep, yeah, this is going to be a print magazine? Um, I don't think I ever thought it wasn't going to be a print magazine. Um, sorry, that's a really shit answer and a, and a, a politician's answer. Um, I worked in magazines for a long time. Um, when I was a teenager, my inspiration, my love of things came from magazines. It, it was It's part of my culture. Um, ten years of my career has been working in magazines. Um, and for me, I felt like for any of the stuff I was to commission, it had to be in, it had to be in print. Um, pure instinct and I think to give opportunity as I as I keep saying it's funny we're, we're doing a panel about breaking the rules I, I, I like to think that it's more about making new rules <laughs> and I think um, I think that there was a, a few constants that Paperboy's about it's about opportunity really um, and it's about bringing good news and about having a more light-hearted look on the world and one of the, the, the major things that before Paperboy existed, I'm phoning up people that I know, really accomplished photographers, writers and illustrators, and I'm asking them to contribute to a magazine that they don't know and doesn't exist. Um, I can be quite persuasive, I can be a bit cheeky as well, so that helped, but at the same time, I was trying to wed them together with school kids and undergraduates, so I got some really great writers on board, I got some really great illustrators and photographers on board, and then I had to do the really hard part, which is commissioning school kids and undergraduates. And I think to do any of these contributors justice, I felt like setting it in stone, for want of a better, it's not in stone, it's in paper, but um, for want of a better analogy, it, was, it felt um, also marking that piece of time about bringing good news when, quite frankly, every time I turned on the radio, the television, or picked up a newspaper, it was a barrage of shit news. So for me, rather than being able to make PPE during a pandemic or, or do anything else, as a, as a designer and an art director, um, the last thing the world needs was another shit poster. So I produced something that created opportunity in good news. And for me, that just instinctively always felt like um, um, a piece of print that should be delivered. Also, it's called Paperboy, right? <laughs> I mean, you can't do that digitally, can you? Cass, the physical, I mean, you mentioned before, this is such a, it's a big, thick magazine. Mm. You are coming from the games world, the, the gaming world, which is a digital world. Mm. Again, was there ever a chance <laughs> this was not going to be print or was it just baked in from the, the beginning? 
Yeah, it was, I mean, like, I, it, <clears throat> it was like a physical zine project I was doing at uni, so it was always physical. And then, I think for me, like, just to echo what's been said, I think the format in which you experience something is so important. Like, the mindset that you're in when you're reading something physically versus on a screen is, like, completely different. Mm. It's just for the same reason that a piece of art, when it's printed, is always going to have, like, a certain magical quality, but looking at it on a screen just won't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're in, you know, you're in a more... When you're sitting down with a physical thing, you're like in a contained space. Like when I'm online, like I'm pretty convinced I've got undiagnosed ADHD because I'm just like ping-ponging about everything, losing track. Um, there's something about being focused and like with something physical that I think is like just really special. And I think in games, especially like games media and games criticism, when so much of games are digital, when so much of um, games coverage is about sort of quick reporting and stuff, it's nice to have something that's completely away from like reaction, the reactionary space that is the internet. Mm. It's not. It's about the slow burn, about letting something like gestate and be with people for a long time. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's about just just say about counterculture. You know, like zines inherently are like rebellion. You know what I mean? They've got like they've got like that history with the punk movement and stuff. There's like this kind of like born and bred thing about the idea of like taking something and doing it yourself that I think is like it's the nice thing about paper is that it's accessible mm -hmm. do you know what I mean mm -hmm. anyone can make a zine if you want to like um. okay so we should get into the ways in which I think you three are breaking rules so and again it's like you know disclaimer this is not to say that any of these people are only ones doing it but I think that they're like sort of nice kind of examples of ways in which it's happening so Cass will stick with you Mm. You used Kickstarter in completely the wrong way, man. Like, uh, it was well, no, no, no. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's you cool. Used, I'm interested in that. You used Kickstarter in complete in the way that Kickstarter was not really intended to be used. So, like, if something is a Kickstarter, mm. you're getting the money up from to to get started with something and your project's off. Whereas you chose to run the magazine through Kickstarter each time. Yeah. Well, I think I don't know, like. That's interesting. I guess it's just all about perspective, I guess. Like, for me, Kickstarter was just like, oh, I'll just see how much I can do to do one issue. Mm -hmm. The idea of, like, the, the amount of money you need to, like, properly set up a company and, like, be, be like, a long-term institutionalized thing is probably more than I could have asked for right out the gate anyway. So I was kind of, my hands were tied. I just asked for, like, I asked for 20K to do something that was, like, half the size of this. Mm -hmm. It was way smaller, smaller page dimensions. Mm -hmm less pages um, and yeah basically like through Kickstarter like Kickstarter bloat was a thing because I got funded twice over and I was a fresh graduate and I was like the sense I had that like oh if this is bad if I don't deliver that's my career fucking gone <laughs> like I'm done so I wanted to like really nail it and uh, yeah I've kind of like been using Kickstarter as just a way of like getting me through to the next issue each time, which maybe yeah, maybe that isn't the right way to do it. I so let's know. let's let's get the let's get the the chronology right. So it was the first one, 2016. Christmas of 2016 was when I did my first Kickstarter okay. for a so, much smaller book. Yeah. So that was you initially asking for twenty thousand. Yeah. You made thirty nine thousand. Yeah, just under. 40K. And so that's what then turned your initial yeah. idea into something bigger. And yeah, that's what you just call Kickstarter bloats, which I yeah. never had before. I like that. Yeah, I would, I would really be careful about that. Um, I managed to get away with it, but I think like seeking funding is a really good thing. But just like maybe, <laughs> what I did is I just kind of, I just let it kind of grow, which I think having really strict parameters for what you're building is always really, really helpful. I, I'm not sure I would recommend someone do what what I did. So issue two. You went mm. big, big, ten South African. You went back to Kickstarter. Yeah. Uh, Two thousand nineteen. Yeah. And how much did you ask for that time? Oh God, I can't remember. I think it was. I think what I asked for was thirty nine k because I was like, I need enough money to make something equally as good as the last one. Okay. I can't ask for less money, and then make an issue two that's half the size because now the thing is bigger, right? So I had to ask for more money. And so <laughs> that time it came in at sixty two thousand. You would know better than me. Okay, no, so, okay. I'm, 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 I, just, I just want to check the like. No, that's cool. Right. That's cool. And then you had a reprint which you ran last year, mm. and I saw you uh, while this was like. Yeah, we met just at the beginning of it. You, right? you looked like you were 
near the end. Well, there's a whole... <laughs> I mean, I think you and I spoke... There's like a whole horror story behind that, which I can get into later. Okay, which is like so, a really... so, so let's just to finish this bit then. So last year, that one came in at 153,000. 153K, yeah. Okay, so give us the horror story. Well, basically, I did a... I did, like, I just released issue two, and I was like, yeah, sick. Uh, did it for a pandemic. <laughs> I was feeling really proud. And then the bill from the delivery people came in. And it turns out my shipment company had like dramatic, like dramatically, dramatically, drastically uh, underestimated how much it was going to cost. They were using estimates that were from the last job I did with them. This was pre-pandemic, pre-Brexit, pre-just the world becoming on fire. So like all my profit from issue two just wiped out. And they were nice about it. They're like, we are bad. Like, we should have given you the correct quote. I was like, yeah, you really should. Uh, so I'm in this situation where like everything I've built up is like at risk of like falling apart. And I didn't want to like <laughs> declare bankruptcy and lose every. I don't know. So I was like, what do I do? I was like, oh, a reprint. And I was really lucky because a lot of people were asking me for a reprint anyway. So I just, from the moment that, so issue two came out in August, end of August 2020? And I, uh, was it 2021? I don't remember. Anyway, basically I was just, I was just like gunning for like months trying to get a reprint Kickstarter set up. And luckily it went really, really well. And I think that's, I've, I've, there's an element of gambling that I've done in the way that I've structured my company and stuff, which is not what I would recommend. I really recommend all of you get a nice stable job and make sure you're, you're doing things uh, in a way that's like more structured than what I did. But I'm, I've always been lucky in that from the day dot, I've had an audience, do you know what I mean? Which is a real massive privilege, which makes all of this mm. stuff possible, mm. do you know what mm. I mean? Which so. is crazy, I mean, like, again, this is a student project, which you, like, you've taken to this point. Jack, you also used Kickstarter to start, so this was 2015, mm -hmm. and 26,000? I believe so. And you did it in the way of like, okay, I'll have that money, thank you, and now I'm going to go and run the magazine. Indeed. No rule breaking there. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but so, uh, how did you find Kickstarter as like a tool for, for getting started? Um, it was fine. I think we will. We want to. So the we've only ever raised that that. 26 k but after Kickstarter and Amazon take their cut, it's about 21 or something. And um, we made quite a bad fuck up in the first issue. Sorry, quite a bad mistake in the first <laughs> issue, uh, which was that um, Real Review works backwards from its financial model. So basically, we took the maximum dimensions of a first-class letter and the maximum weight of a first-class letter and then worked out what the thinnest possible paper was within those constraints in order to maximize our pagination. That was, therefore, the budget for shipping the first issue was like 1,500 quid. I forgot to include the weight of the staples and the weight of the ink, which added an additional nine grams and tipped us over into a, a new shipping category, which meant that the first ship, shipment cost something like five and a half grand. Uh, which blew a hole in the budget for the second issue. Basically, Real Review lost about five to seven thousand pounds per issue for the first five issues, and built up a huge Ponzi scheme inside it. Um, because basically, what happens is if you're short, so I, I really wanted to push subscriptions. That was the logic, right? So you've got seven hundred readers out of the Kickstarter, uh, but you have promised them, I think, four issues. Um, now you don't actually have enough budget to deliver four issues because you've just miscalculated on the weight of shipment. Therefore, you need more subscribers. But as you get more subscribers, you now need new subscribers to pay for the shortfall that you have. And it begins to explode. So after issue five, or after issue four, we stopped all subscriptions and basically really pushed magazine distribution. And a lot of magazine stores would not take real review because it's the wrong size, it's the wrong frequency. Um, doesn't fit their format. Uh, so that was a hard sell, but we, we pushed that quite hard. And now our magazine store circulation is about four and a half, five thousand copies, I think. And that, you know, that's okay. Mm -hmm. It's all right, it's fine. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so basically the whole thing ticks along. Last year, our operating profit on a turnover of, I think, 175 grand was 224 pounds. So, and I, I don't get paid, I've, I never take any money from it. but. 
it pretty much perfectly breaks even. Um, and Kickstarter was obviously very important because I don't want to, you know, speculate about your backgrounds, but in my case, I had no money and I had no access to money. Therefore, Kickstarter is really the only way that I could imagine to raise capital, especially mm. in 2015 when mm. there was not uh, so much, such a culture of kind of um, uh, subscription-based payments. Um, and so I think what you were saying about having a community is, you know, in the case of Real Review, many of the people that I worked with in magazines said that Real Review would not be successful because there is no obvious, unlike, say, the game uh, industry, there is no obvious sector for understanding what it means to live today. Like, what even is that? What are you going to commission around that? And so in that sense, building... Uh, but I, I had a kind of attitude which was like, we'll produce it and we'll see because I think... Um, in a way, this comes back to what you were saying about the relationship with a physical printout of art versus mm. something like an NFT, about which I'm very skeptical. Um, is that um, what the beauty of a printed magazine is that it's a clear proposition. It's mm. not like a blog which updates every day and which is infinite and, and has no real kind of beginning or end. A magazine appears at a specific time and place. It has a physical audience. Only people who buy it can be connected to you and it has a geographic area in that sense um, but that idea of making a clear proposition I think is really important because then people who see it and maybe recognize something of themselves or their own interests in it are then attracted to it and you in effect create a community or create an audience and that's I mean we're going to turn to to come back to your question we're going to turn to maybe Kickstarter or maybe some other form of crowdsourcing later this year to raise I think about 20k so again not like a I mean, on the one hand, for me, it's like a phenomenal amount of money, and on the other hand, not a huge amount of money, um, in order to build out a community platform. So to do things like introduce a Discord, uh, be able to um, host things like reading sessions or community sessions. And actually, at the moment, what I see is like a one-directional relationship between publisher and, and audience. Basically, the spatial setup we've got here, right? But imagine if we were all in a circle instead. It would be a much more interesting uh, engagement in many ways, I think. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, Kickstarter is great for kind of initially forming the kernel of a community, mm -hmm. um, but it has many limitations, uh, mm -hmm. especially if you're not that good at business, which sounds like you and I, I don't want to speak for you, but, you know. Uh, but well, let's, let's get to David, because the, so the, this, is, this is kind of David's rule breaking as well. So, so you make this magazine, <clears throat> which is a very beautiful magazine. Thank you. It has... I think one of the loveliest things about it is you have this like uh, like kind of like book cloth cover, mm -hmm. which is simultaneously like really like tough and robust, but also like really delicate and and kind of like flimsy. It has this lovely show through that means you can kind of like see what's behind it. But I mean that must cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Have you ever thought about not doing that? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I could maybe I'll start by quoting my uh, my accountant, um, Glenn Booth, who's a lovely man from Doncaster, and I won't try his accent, but I think you'll get the sentiment when he says, "David, Paperboy's a fucking financial disaster," <laughs> and and I can kind of I can kind of back him up on that because it is um, my, my my business model is 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 I pay for it myself um, and I justify that to Glenn, my accountant, in two ways. Um, firstly, I, I'm, I'm an independent art director and I work with brands, commercial brands in fashion, music, art and a little bit of culture um, and they essentially pay for this. So each issue I think maybe loses about £5 an issue um, which is oh shit, it's on that thing now, isn't it? Uh, which is not, which is not, not kind of commonly known. Um, but as you point out, the production values are are extremely high on it. And part of that sentiment is just to give you an idea of the circular thing. Is I work for commercial clients, therefore I reinvest it. And I teach, I teach at undergraduates at art schools, and um, I'll start to get involved below secondary school now as well. And I pull these guys in, and I'm trying to give them opportunity where I was given opportunity. And in a way, it's a kind of circular thing, not to get too philosophical about it, but I can afford to do that because I work for commercial clients that pay me money. Um, the other way I justify it is, is I don't 
buy expensive bikes or train sets. So this essentially is my life and my hobby and I spend my spare time, as I mentioned, um, making Paperboy because I get an enormous amount of pleasure and privilege out it. But yeah, each issue essentially will lose about 12 to 14,000 pounds um, without accounting for my time. But I don't almost see it as a loss. So maybe that's where the, the rule breaking comes from. And mm. I think for me, the, the production values, I've worked for magazines, I was an art director at Wallpaper Magazine, I was a creative director at Esquire Magazine. I, I, I come from a world where rules are adhered to in order to publish in a conventional way. And straight away I started to fuck with that. I wanted to use book material for a magazine. I don't want people to throw it away. I want people to keep it. And if they're finished with it, I want people to share it. And that was the whole idea in the first one, where there was a set of stamps bound into the, bound into the, the stapled into the, the, the outer section. So that when you're finished with it, you post it on. So this magazine's life keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. Now, two things happened there. Um, firstly, we had to reprint it because there was huge demand. But every time we reprinted it and every time I sold a copy, it was a real high and low. There was excitement of, oh, hey, there's another order, another four orders come through, great. But every order, I lost four quid. So it was really, it was it slightly got out of control. But we were in a pandemic time and I kind of was just getting a bit excited, as my girlfriend will tell you at the back. And it, and it financially got quite dangerous, I guess, as we've all been. So I think that's the common denominator here is, is maybe we're just not good businessmen or maybe publishing's a financial crazy place to be going right now, especially in print media. Um, however, it did gain a lot of momentum um, and it got distributed pretty much worldwide um, and and it hit, a real, it hit a real sweet spot, I think, where people responded really well um, and eventually I got a couple of thousand pounds back and set about the second one. Um, at which point somebody else tried to sue me as well. So even when you try to do something really great, um, you will get someone coming up and kicking your heels and trying to sue you. So I then I had to find some money to pay a lawyer to get another paper boy, a lesser paper boy now, off my back um, and get him off my round. But did that answer your question? <laughs> I think I did. Um, so, so I, you know, I'm, I'm messing around with the ideals of Paperboy, um, but with, with magazine publishing, you know, it's unconventional, it's printed on book cloth, which is an expensive thing, um, but it's essential to what I'm trying to say. You know, I'm using, I don't know how many you remember when you used to buy a magazine or you get a free gift with it or you would get something, you know, I'm, I'm messing with that, you know, at the back of, as I mentioned, this one, you get some stamps to post it on to someone else. And the latest issue, which is all about the future, because there's a lot of tragedy about the future. Um, there's a lot of bad news about the future. It's important that I try to find some optimism about the future. And at the back of this one, you've got a fortune teller fish, which you place in the palm of your hand and it tells you if you're passionate or not or something. But for me, it's like, you know, I'm messing with I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to make new rules and kind of mess with the rules of, of magazine convention. Um, almost like one of, one of the most inspiring thing about Jack's magazine is, is the format and the starting point for that format and the, the, the strategy with that format, which I think is extremely clever where you're, where you're doing a financial decision or you get financial restraints about posting and and, the, and it creates a, a wonderful format and I think messing with that and, and challenging the convention of magazine publishing is probably our, our, our jobs and I think even though financially it's a disaster I think it's an important thing to try. I, I want to come back to the financial stuff but, the, but so you, you just brought up the format of Real Review, so for anyone who's not seen it, uh, Real Review uh, folds out as a magazine does, but then it also has an extra vertical fold in it, so it folds out again. So, and I mean, it remains the only example of that that I've ever seen. There's, so a, few, there's a few imitators. All right, yeah. yeah. Okay. There, it's you know, it's getting there, but yeah, it is the first vertical fold ever to be. I mean, it's 
dubious claim to fame, really. Um, <laughs> but yes. But so, so tell us then, so where did this idea come from? And uh, like, is it, does it have something essential to do the project? Because I... Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a very straightforward situation, which is the original designer. So the, the what maybe an, a slight side point would be to say that um, uh, I have delusions of grandeur. Uh, and therefore, you know, my hope is that Real Review will become what I think of as being a mainstream magazine. Currently at a circulation of about 8,000, needs to get up to about 16, 20,000 before it really constitutes a mainstream publication. So we're, we're getting there, right? I would say if we can keep it going another five or six years. But I also have this kind of idea of, of legacy and longevity, which is to say that it should be the case that I'm not the only editor of real review that it can be taken over by someone else in the future and so I'm quite interested in how you build in institutional building as well our current uh, designer uh, Alif Tanman is you know f absolutely phenomenal designer and phenomenal art director and is a key part of our extremely small team the original designers were London-based uh, uh, company or agency called OKRM and I was working with one of their uh, directors Rory on this project in 2015 and what we were really talking about was the crossover between architecture and publishing. And what both of us are very interested in is uh, the history of conceptual art. And one of the things we were talking about in terms of how this magazine might be different is when you print, of course, the, the first thing is that it has a cost per square meter, just like a house or anything else. And therefore, you have to think of it as real estate. I mean, and therefore, it has a value and a priority to it. And one of the things that I was most interested in was trying to create new relationships between image and text. Uh, and so the fold came about as a way of thinking about what would it be like if we made the page into a space? And what types of strategies can you use to make a page into a strip of space? So we went through a number of different formats to create spaces out of page. Uh, I, and in the end, actually, the, the reference that I brought in that Rory and I really liked was uh, Mad Magazine. I don't know if you know this uh, American publication. In the back page of Mad, there was always like a drawing where it was, a, you know, it was a picture of like a street scene. And then you fold it along two lines. And through that fold, it turns into like the face of Nixon or something. And that, that was basically it. But it was such an unusual thing that the printers... Um, uh, the first dummy was folded the wrong way because it's, it's basically the same machine which has been folding newspapers in half for the last hundred years uh, but rotated 90 degrees and that gives me a lot of it was in a sense a kind of accident because it was a product of thinking around the space of the page but it gives me a lot of optimism for anyone here who runs a magazine or might be thinking of starting a magazine which is you can often feel that there is no space for innovation there's no possibility of doing it's everything's been done and the, and the limitations around like what is economic to print, what is economic to produce, can seem very limiting. Um, and what I found very beautiful about this was that just by turning the page 90 degrees and using the same machinery that has existed for a century, you can create something which has never existed before. So it gave me a lot of hope that there's always space for innovation and doing something which is different, even mm -hmm. within rules which might seem very fixed. And presumably didn't cost a huge amount of money because it's just moving Nothing the at all. machine. Nothing at all. So um, I'm going to come to all of you for questions in a little bit. So please do uh, have a think if there's anything that you want to ask some of the guys here. Um, I want to get back onto the, the track that we were on before. So Cass, the, the reprint issue was your biggest one yet. Yeah. You had had to take a big hit with the shipping costs in the pandemic. Mm. How were you left at the end of the reprint, and does that then give you like a solid foundation for going on and doing? Yeah, more? I'm. I'm finally at this point where I'm doing. I'm like, I have enough money left over from the reprint, but I'm already developing issue three stuff. And I'll be real. Like, there's something psychologically way better about making something on your own without. There's something psychologically better about making something without. 1,000, 2,000 Kickstarter backers. Mm. Um, I love that and I love that community and I want to have that again. But with that also comes pressure of expectation and stuff. Um, financially, I will definitely have to go back to the Kickstarter funding model. But there's something really nice about like, oh, I can just do small bits now. I can get prep, I can make 
gains now, basically. So that when I am ready to go back to my audience, I have something to show them, you know, rather than just, usually what I do is I just focus on like the cover and try and get the cover as cool as possible and figure that out. But there's, yeah, there's just something really nice about being at this point where I have something more than nothing. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like I have, a, I have a little bit of resource now that I can use to like develop and do this stuff without having to go to Kickstarter first. So that's a really, that's like an amazing feeling at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and David, so continuing the same sort of thought. So do you feel like Paperboy will forever be in this format with like, for example, the book cloth, like the, you know, or do you think that there could be a version of Paperboy, which is like, you know, maybe sort of like round two where it doesn't cost you four quid for every magazine that you make? Um, I, I think the, the pure principles of losing money, I think it probably will need to, at some point, move into a, another form. Yes, is a short answer. But I think, you know, it's like, I can look at it singularly and go, yeah, it's a financial disaster, as an accountant does. But at the same time, to give it a, I don't want to sound all Robin Hood in that, but, you know, by making money through working in a commercial arena, I can then put it into something that's very much less commercial. So I don't really see them as independent entities, if that mm, like. And that's mm, my, if I want to call myself a publisher as such, you know, I, I can do, or I can, as, as a business, it's, it's losing money with one arm and making money with, with another. Mm. Um, but I think, weirdly, what's probably going to be a bigger hurdle, really, is, is the fact that it's, sells more than I ever anticipated and that becomes a problem with these production values where suddenly you know hand stapling hand tipping in thousands of fish to the back on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon just becomes an impossibility because I can stop I have to stop making money to stick fucking fish in the back of a magazine so there becomes the, the realms of okay, well, if, if it's going to be consumed, which I think is the most important thing about it, is that it's consumed, um, I, I need to make the numbers bigger. The, the third one's only been out three weeks and it's almost gone. Um, and that becomes a frustrating thing because for me to reprint it, I'll, I'll end up in a worse scenario than this man. Well, I won't only have Kickstarter people want to kill me, but I'll, I'll have, I'll have um, my accountant going crazy. But anyway, long and short is, is I think in order to reach an audience, it's probably going to be the bigger factor than the financial one in, in just pure time. Mm, mm, um, mm. But I've got a couple of ways that I can still make it pretty special. Nice. Do you want to share them or are they a secret? Uh, no, they're in their infancy. Oh. <laughs> Actually, I don't have any idea. <laughs> <laughs> I made that one up. I love it. No, okay. but that's, that's, I think that's the thing. I mean, it's like, it's like it's like Jack was talking about, you know, out of a problem there's a solution, you know, and, and I think um, I think there'll be there'll be something clever there and I think having worked in publishing for quite a long time, I think finding Jack's alternative to twisting the machine ninety degrees is, is there'll be something in there and I and I agree with with Jack on some levels it's not everything's been done. It's mm. about it's about a different approach and maybe not referencing Magazines, that's one thing I would say if people mm. were to, to you know, I've kind of feel like I should reference magazines because I've got such a history in them. But there's other other products, other things, other ways of rethinking what a publication can be. And I think that's the most important thing for anybody starting out. Mm. Maybe if I pick up on that just briefly about editorial position as well, because, I mean, you know, the form follows the editorial direction, right? And I think what both of you have been talking about is... Uh, a sense that you wanted to produce something which didn't exist and that you had a particular opinion and a particular position that you wanted to express mm. and you both found forms which are unique to that position which mm. is also true for real review I mean in our case you know we get some weird stuff that happens because it was imagined as a subscription only magazine for the first four issues we didn't have to do things like design a cover. So the idea was like, you don't have to sell it to someone, right? No, mm. You're not trying to put it in a magazine store and seduce someone. They've already bought it by the time it comes in the post. And that liberates you to produce a different type of aesthetic again. So all of these, uh, for me, I, I think it's very much taking a strong editorial position, being very sure of 
the types of things you want to talk about and, and you've both been super clear about your scope and your um, your missions in a way mm. uh, and then the forms will, will follow from that and I think you're absolutely right about not looking too much about what everyone else is doing because that will in the end just weaken your own perspective and your own opinions yeah I mean I'm in this situation now where you know for as much as my my whole journey has been like a series of like mistakes I guess that like happy accidents and stuff it's kind of provided a template for other people to follow and go and now there are more and more art magazines that are video game focused and are sort of you know using the same kind of like pricing structure and crowdfunding model and sort of also kind of like aesthetically similar in terms of its layout and stuff and like we're all kind of like in this massive chain of sort of inspiration and taking what we want and sort of remixing and doing stuff but when I think about all of this I just think oh limitations are so important and so good um, just providing like sticking limitations on yourself I kind of miss my zine days in a way because it was just I could only use four colors or something you know something like that is um, is like massively important I think it, you just gotta you just gotta I, I guess it's like a value set going back to what you're saying the idea of just like you have to pick the things that are valuable to you and like try and stick to them as much as possible and it's really hard <laughs> but you gotta try all right, do we have any questions? Uh, Paz, um, hey. when you, um, one of the things I love about Profound Waste of Time is the amount of contributors you have. Yeah. And they all bring something different. Thank um, you. When you first did your Kickstarter, did you already have in mind the people you'd like to contribute to, or did they come to you? Yeah, so I, uh, issue one, I was just basically going, I, I had the zine, so I could show people the zine. And I was really lucky where I got people like Ashley Birch and like Rami Ishmael. These are like big people in the games industry who are, you know, really renowned and stuff. And they liked the zine enough that they were willing to, they were like, yeah, I'll, I'll be a part of this. And then with all of that, there was, there was the promise of like, you won't start working until after we're funded. So there's no, it's just saying you will work for this if it happens. So it was actually very easy to sort of get get like a, a roster of people. And I've always been like super, super keen that like, I want to celebrate and sort of showcase, like I, I like a really nice subsection, like a vertical slice of the industry. So really interesting people who are doing different things and different, different levels. And yeah, I, I, I make a big point with my contributors, like I want to show them off. So at the back of the mag, there's like a, a list of everyone and they've all got their own little illustrated emblem and stuff because yeah as much as I'm talking about like oh I do this more or less on my own I have I have I'm useless completely on my own do you know what I mean um, so yeah I feel like I'm rambling past what you asked about but um, <laughs> well yeah. I, let me let me jump on that because so David the like such an important part of your magazine is the contributors because as you say you've got the professionals alongside people who've never written before alongside people yeah. who are not professional writers and, and where did that idea come from? And I mean, so the thing that I get from Paperboy, whenever I pick it up, you flip through and you're just like, ah, I just feel happy as a result of looking at this. Did, I mean, was that, is that why you use the non-professionals or was there something else behind that idea? Uh, so I always wanted to do Paperboy. That idea happened when the pandemic hit and I've got small people who are in my life who I'm very close to. Um, at different stages in their, in their childhood um, and early adulthood um, and they were struggling, they were really struggling, I could see they were struggling and, and when I was growing up in more normal times, you know, two or three people gave me a little opportunity to do something and, I, and I, you don't really forget those things. So for me, it was really important to give younger people some kind of opportunity. And as I mentioned, I felt a bit at a loss as a designer and art director during pandemic times, because what I was producing was was not helping, if that makes any sense, or of not any contribution. <laughs> so that's where that element of the magazine came into. And actually, they're the hardest commission in the world. I found it easier to phone up the, the famous writers I've been working with and authors and hey would you do this because it was a, a dream and it was like again you won't need to do anything until I get it off the ground um, but doing a zoom to my old high school in Glasgow to a class full of 15 year olds trying to explain to them about a magazine that doesn't exist 
on their lunch hour whilst they're eating their mag whilst they're eating their sandwiches was one of the most difficult commissions in the in the in the whole wide world. And try to drag some copy out of them and like it was fucking impossible to be honest. And it took it took up most of my time. Um it was only when I said there's a democratic fee of one hundred and fifty pounds of sandwiches <laughs> went down and it was like and also that I mean I think that's important to me as well. I mean there's a democratic shit fee for every contributor. Mm. It's it's it, and it's one hundred and fifty British pounds, which is quite frankly no enough for each person, but it, it does put everyone on this the the, mm. the, the, the sliding the same scale, um, and I think that was that was important. It's like you know, like I said, the youngest contributor was eight, and one hundred and fifty quid to her was a new pair of trainers and the lottery, you know, mm. and mm. and to the others, and a lot of the a lot of the practicing guys just say put it in the next issue. I don't yeah. want anything. So yeah. Like, yeah, we do the same. It's so it's two hundred pounds, euros, or dollars. Uh, for, per contributor but you know a lot of the people that write for us are very well established or quite famous people they don't they don't need 200 quid you know and so we take that and if they don't want it we then divide that amongst all the other authors so you know hopefully we'll try one of the reasons for going after so many famous people is actually because they don't often want the money and they can use it for people who need it no that's that is also really good and slightly yeah I'm glad you said that <laughs> any more questions Spoke about your contributors. Could you talk a bit about your, your teams? Teams? So I, I repeat. So yeah. you, you spoke a bit about contributors. Could you talk a bit about your teams? Um, the team is is me and Matilda, who's my girlfriend up there, and Saturdays, Sundays, watching Murder She Wrote in Colombo, and writing lots of emails and packing things in bags and stuff. And yeah, that, that's 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 my team and. And, and as Cass mentioned, it's I rely on the 20 years of contacts that I've made um, to do this, really, to, to, to make the content and, and we, we put it together. I, I, don't, I don't have a team. Uh, mine, I'm just me. Um, <laughs> but like I say that, obviously, I have fantastic freelance contributors who uh, I'm really blessed and lucky to work with, and I've also got um, godfathering the project and sort of helping me with from like a producer advice angle is Darren Wall, who was someone I met as a student, and he was like a really instrumental part. He runs a video game book publisher called uh, Read Only Memory, and he's just always kind of like I think I've been very lucky in that. <laughs> even though I think profound waste of time, if you <laughs> if you look at it, you're just sort of like oh, it's just some guy. Why would I want to work with this person? I've, I've, I've always had people advocating for me. I'm incredibly lucky. So, and I, for issue one, I had my friend Harrison from uh, Harrison Dew, who now works at Studio Koto. He's a senior designer there now, but he was just, he helped design a couple pages for me because I was way out of my depth and I needed some help. Uh, for issue one, also had Leo Field helped a bit in terms of like, he gave us, he gave the mag structure. But in terms of, um, Leo worked on the style guide and then I just did the design elements, putting stuff in. Issue two I did basically on my own. But obviously I, I'm really dyslexic, so I have a proofreader called Julia, who's really nice. Um, so yeah, I mean, I wish I, I wish I had more of a team. There's so much I could talk about here because there's a balance between I want everyone I work with to be paid. And I try to pay them a, an above average rate for games journalism. And I try to pay you know, rates that illustrators are happy with. Um, with that in mind, like if I had an in-house team, like real talk, I don't really pay myself, or I do, <laughs> I do it sporadically. Um, I don't want to be in a situation like going back to what I said about values earlier. Like I know what's important to me. It's about having a mag that looks like this, and in order for that to happen, I can't have. I I need to do it in this certain way. It's really god. It's 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 complicated. It's just like being pulled in two different directions by this thing, but I'm just trying my best with the resources I've got. <laughs> that's, that's all, really. Jack, who's your team? Um, originally, Real Review was OKRM, which is Ollie Knight and Rory McGrath, 
and myself and the deputy editor um, Emma Caps, who was with us for about four years before being headhunted by the ICA who offered her a lot more money and was very irritating that she took a much better higher profile job and so uh, and, that, and our current team uh, about two years ago um, we took the design we we moved the design from OKRM in-house and so we have a designer, Alif Tanman, who works on it. And there's an associate editor, um, uh, uh, Madeline Weaver, who uh, has been working on it now for about a year. So it's a small team. Um, Maddie is one day per week. I do about one day per week. Uh, there are other infrastructural s sources that are important to mention. So, I mean, we have what well, we call them contributing editors, but most of them don't contribute very much. Uh, I mean, sorry, in terms of written text, they. Basically, we have weekly meetings with the editorial team, which is about, and they're very unusual and interesting people. They're um, feminist publishers in Lagos. They are uh, economists in Beijing. They are um, foreign correspondents from Austria based in New York. They're people from many, they're artists and other people. They often come together on a, um, issue by issue basis so depending on what we think the mood for the next issue might be I start to think about people who would be useful in this conversation and they inform a lot around the editorial direction um, and then sometimes we have uh, uh, assistant editors who will help us with particularly difficult commissions um, uh, and then there's an infrastructural team which is out, out, outside us so of course we have a newsstand which I think is important to mention um, do we? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, how's it going? So, <laughs> Newsstand are our fulfillment. Uh, I, I guess you could say fulfillment a company. They, but, but they basically are the kind of machine that drives real review. Uh, we make the magazine, and they actually make it possible for us to sell it. Um, and then we also have distributors as well who uh, really believe in the magazine as well, which is very important. Our, our biggest distributor is Anten in in the UK. Uh, and 10 books and uh, 12 in uh, 12 books in Japan and then we have a couple of others like perimeter in Australia but um, but yeah so the that's the the core team is essentially me one assistant designer and I wish we could afford to have a proof editor that would be my next thing that I want to be able to pay for because we make very many errors uh, <laughs> Um, and yeah, that's 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 the team. That's not true. You don't make that many errors. There, there are lots of but magazines. In issue that number eleven, Gabriella de la Puente, who you may know from White Pube, uh, which is a fantastic kind of cultural um, project based in London, she wrote an, a very beautiful review of what it's like to have long COVID, and it's you know, one of the best pieces we've ever published. And uh, she, she doesn't appear in the contents list. Uh, because we got the pagination wrong and so I was looking at it I was like yeah that adds up that's the right number of pieces and then it goes out and you receive it it's like oh no uh -uh. in this issue we have a, a another really bad error which is the very final piece in the issue is about interspecific feeding which is you know basically communism in disguise I mean uh, you think that animals are supposed to compete with each other it's survival of the fittest in the jungle and whatever right but actually animals don't work like that they often help each other and they contribute to each other's uh, well-being and so we have this photograph of a, a finch that's feeding goldfish and I'm amazed by this because it's like how does a bird even know that fish need worms like uh, uh, but unfortunately the title instead of being interspecific feeding is <laughs> interspecific breeding uh, which creates a very different suggestion about what is happening Man, I, I wrote a whole lot of notes on what I thought that meant yeah right seriously so like, I, I was like oh yeah no it's clever that's the so, sometimes it works <laughs> I, I, I wrote a review a few issues back of low battery what, what it means to have a low battery and how you deal with uh, low battery it's a metaphor for capitalism, but um, due to the problems with editing, the last sentence got chopped in half. So it starts and then just ends, like two, two words into the final sentence because the bottom line got cut. And everyone was like, so clever, man, you know, like, low bat, and you're just trying to text and then suddenly run out. And I was just like, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. All right, we're at that stage again where I feel like this could just carry on. Um, thank you so much uh, for coming and talking about all this. And I'm really, I hope that I didn't offend anyone too badly in telling you that you're doing it all wrong. I don't mean that at all. Uh, thank all of you for coming and listening to this. Uh, again, please do go check out the magazines at the back. Uh, and we've got one more talk on up at four o'clock.
Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, that's all for this week. If you did hear last week's episode, you'll know that conversation also included lots of talk about mistakes. I always love to hear those horror stories about things that have gone wrong along the way. And I'd like to say thanks again to David, Caspian and Jack for being so open about all of that and for showing how they tackled the particular problems that they faced. I had originally planned to release the day's final panel discussion next Friday, but I forgot about the fact that I'm not going to be here next week, so that one will go up in a couple of weeks' time once all of Britain has got over celebrating the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Um, Thank you very much for listening to this one, and we'll be back with our next episode in the middle of June.